Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for those speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Minette. My name is Nanette. I'm a compulsive overeater. So I first came to OA. Is this actually working? Yes. Okay. I first came to OA for the purpose of losing weight to catch a man who would then fix me. And I didn't. I did know that OA stem from AA, and um, so I came in with a diet mentality, and I thought the recovery would be going on a diet that's like perfect diet forever, and that would be recovery. And I went to um, maybe four meetings a week, and every meeting I went to, I was looking for a man. And in those days, there are fewer men than today, so it was like, (laughs) not too good. So uh, after meetings, I would eat a lot of amounts of food to get rid of the feeling of having been in a meeting. And um, it's not that I didn't like you, but it was a very strange place. Um, uh, example of how I ate, um, this one job I had, you got 45 minutes for lunch so that everybody could leave at quarter to five. So I would make a, a nice brown bag lunch, take it to work, and when lunchtime came, it was too boring to eat. So then I'd go to the second, the fifth floor that had a, ha- um, a cafeteria. And they had specials. Two, you choose one of two main things and two of four sides. So I would two, choose one major grease and four and two side greases. And I would eat that. And then I had time left because I was a very fast eater. Then I'd go to the first floor where they had a place of this guy who sold... Uh, newspapers, chewing gums, cigarettes, and pre-made sandwiches. And I'd buy one or two of those and tear off the little, the crust. It would be like a soggy tuna sandwich type thing. And then I'd go back to the desk, and there'd be the lunch that I had abandoned that i eat that. So it's not like I had 45 minutes to eat lunch. It's I had to eat for 45 minutes. And I would, my stomach would be extended, and I would feel so embarrassed I would have to suck in every time I got up to go to the files or something. But when I got back to my desk, I could relax my stomach. And uh, another way I ate is uh, after work, I would go to a fast food place. Like I needed the food to get home, even though I lived by myself. I would order two main things, two side things, and one diet soda. And then I'd go to the car, but I wouldn't eat it yet because basically if I thought it, I ate it. If I had a food thought that entered my brain, I'd have to go get it. The sooner the better, but never, I would never give it up. You know, like a few days later, I would still, after whatever food I thought came into my head. And um, then I would go to the second fast food place and get whatever my thing was at that fast food place. Take it to the car, 
and then maybe even one more. Then I sit in the car in the last fast food place and eat everything at once because I like all my food in front of me to eat all at once. So I knew it was, I didn't like to piecemeal. And then some days, if I didn't do that, I would go home and I would put uh, two frozen dinners in the oven. I'd take a shower, put on a clean flannel nightgown, and they were done, and then I ate them. And then maybe an hour or two later, I'd be hungry. And I would have several sandwiches composed of white bread with room temperature butter with sugar sprinkles on it sandwiches. Have several of those. And then before going to bed, I might have a can of fruit cocktail and a boiled, boiled bag of cream spinach. Not mixed together, but eating at the same midnight snack. And so those are big eating days, but not an unusual eating day. Oh, God. Um, okay, so because I had a diet mentality and I heard at meetings that we're not a diet club, I had to not call them diets. I call them abstinences. And every diet, in my mind, is an abstinence, but it's not necessarily recovery. And it took me eight years to get recovery, which I have today. I had eight abstinences in eight years. The first long-term abstinence was three days. That's all I could get together, three days. The next one was three days, five days, four days, 15 days, 17 days, 23 days, 27 days was abstinence number seven. And I'm, at, I'm on abstinence number eight, which is now 40 years. So there's a big difference between 27 days and 40 years. So what happened? Um, I heard that we're not a diet club. And what happened? Okay, the first thing that happened is I discovered that I had the disease of perfectionism. And in me, the disease of perfectionism is very powerful, as powerful as the disease of compulsive overeating. In fact, in my mind, they were sisters. They were conjoined twins. And being conjoined twins, if one twin got a cold, they both got a cold. And if one twin took a Tylenol, it would be in both circulation system. In other words, whatever happened to one happened to the other. So in order for me to recover from compulsive overeating, I had to also be willing to recover from the disease of perfectionism. And the only way I have found to recover from the disease of perfectionism is that when I do something that I think is imperfect, I have to keep it. Because every time I started over, I was practicing the disease of perfectionism, which also meant I would also continue to practice the disease of compulsive overeating. Okay, so... And I, I like to say that the seven abstinences I had before this recovery one, they were, I didn't have seven relapses. I had seven attempts at recovery. And once I crossed that invisible line into recovery, I've never relapsed. I've eaten ugly, but not a relapse. Okay, the second thing that happened, I, as I'm looking back on it, is that I didn't do the steps. I did not want to do step one because I did not want to be powerless over food. 
I actually didn't believe you were powerless over food. I thought you said you were powerless over food as kind of a working definition so that you can work 12 steps. It was a fake thing. And the reason I didn't want to be um, powerless over food is because I was using my personal power to hold my weight down in a weight that scared me. And the weight that scared me was 200 pounds. So I was using my personal power to tamp that down so I would never reach 200 pounds. And so you guys are saying, you have to be powerless. In other words, I have to weigh 200 pounds if I didn't have power. So it was like catch-22. You have to be powerless to recover, but you would then weigh 200 pounds because you were powerless to hold that weight down. And it was catch-22. What do you do? So I had come from recovery in another 12-step fellowship for friends and families of alcoholics. And I was told that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was the same thing as asking a tuberculosis not to cough. The guy who has TB has to cough because that's what his disease does. It makes you cough. And I don't tell somebody to not cough, don't cough anymore, because you're ruining your life by coughing. They can't help it. And so that way I was able to start practicing 12 steps in the other 12-step program because I really truly believe you are powerless over a cough and I had to use that analogy to, to understand the powerlessness of it. So the guy who has TB doesn't cough and say, this is the last time I'm going to cough. I will never cough again because I'm going to work 12 steps because I know TB is a real disease and I know you're truly powerless over a cough. And so for me to do step one in OA, I had to be powerless over food, which I didn't want to be. I tried every way to be powerless over food. I talked about it, thought about it, shared about it, every way I could think of, but everything that I tried was still in my head, like I couldn't really believe it. And I need to believe it in my gut to really be powerless. So I had to use that coughing TB analogy. And I felt like a fraud. I acted as if it's okay to binge and overeat. It's not that I tried to binge and overeat. I tried not to, but I had to use that and act as if. And then I was doing that for about three months, and something strange happened to me. I suddenly, for the first time in my life, I felt blameless. And I knew that it had reached my gut, the belief that I was powerless. And... And I felt better. So re- being willing to recover from the disease of perfectionism and being truly powerless over food and not blaming myself. <clears throat> and then the last thing is um, God. My higher power is called God. And I had a higher power in my other 12-step fellowship in the rest of my life, everywhere in my life, but specifically not in OA. This was the only place there was no higher power for me. And I had to write about it. And what came up in my writing is that I couldn't trust a God who made me fat. I just, I just could not get in touch with that God. And if I had to define what God was to me and everywhere else, God was um, loving and infinitely wise. But not in OA. There was, it was a desert here in OA. <clears throat> 
So I wrote about it of how I wanted God to be like. I'm going to have to clear my throat, excuse me. <clears throat> I didn't want to do it in the microphone. Um, so I, so that my sponsor at the time said, you know, what would you like God to be like? So what I wanted God to be like, I wanted God to want me to live thin and that everything in my life was in preparation for that time, which meant that I couldn't do anything wrong, that every experience I had, mistakes, overeating, binging, whatever, was a necessary experience provided by my higher power so that I would live thin later. <clears throat> and... Um, so then God became my friend. There was nothing I could do that was wrong. I couldn't say swear words and uh, swear at somebody and be wrong because every experience I needed to have. And then one of the things I also did, like all those seven abstinences were actual diets, which I didn't call diet, diet a diet because they were not a diet club. So for the first time, I was willing not to have a diet, which was scary. I was willing to have meals at mealtime with life in between. And life in between for me included popcorn at the movies. And I didn't want to eat breakfast at 12.01 a.m. So breakfast at meals at mealtime with life in between. And then the first thing I did outside of that guideline was I realized that when I went to a restaurant, I ate too many rolls and it made me feel bad. I connected that. So I said, one of my guidelines for abstinence is, if I'm in a restaurant and if they have rolls, I'll have one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And I put it that specifically, because there'd be the basket of rolls, I would take a roll and I'd open the packet of butter. And then I'd finish the roll, but there'd be some butter left. So I'd take the second roll to use up that butter, but there wasn't enough butter for the second roll. I had to open the second butter. And then that some second butter left, I had to take a third roll to use up the second butter, and had to open the third butter. <laughs> so I said, one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And then I ate every last thing they served me. Every grain of rice, the decorative lettuce, if I wanted it, everything. Because I figured if they served it to me, it was my portion in a restaurant, which is like, you know, on the large side. And one, one restaurant put down a basket of assorted rolls. So then a big debate happened. Which one looks best? If I take this one, maybe that one's better. But this one's smaller, but it looks better than that one. You know, this big debate. So I knew that if this is long-term, I cannot feel deprived. So I said, I'll have one of each kind, and they'll share the same pat of butter. There happened to be three kinds. So I had three rolls, shared the same pat of butter, then I ate every last thing they served me. And that was another abstinent meal for me. And in spite of eating this way, I lost weight. I started losing weight. Okay. So I was watching a public television show, and it was an exercise guru speaking, who wrote a book, and he was lecturing. At the end of the show, they had Q&A from the audience. And one question was, which is the best exercise? And his answer was, the one you'll do. And that gave me great relief, because the one I do is the one I'll do. And I can't do something that I can't stand to, to stay on and I can't wait to get off of. 
And one of the things that happened this, at this particular recovery, which is I was willing to do baby steps. Before, I, wanted, I aimed at stuff I couldn't do, and I couldn't do it, so I failed. And one thing about, it's like instead of going from A to B, I, I wanted to go from A to W. And B was that baby step that I could do. It was so simple to do, but I didn't do it because I could, and therefore I didn't value it. So when I was willing to take a baby step and go from A to B, and I was at B, and something happened at B, suddenly C presents itself to me. But I can't see C until I get to B. Then I'm, when I'm brave enough to try something new, I go to C. And then eventually D presents itself. And eventually I built a recovery. And you can have a recovery not built not on stuff you can't do, but what you can do. Okay, so, I don't know if I can fill this time. Okay. Okay, so I was absent about three months, and it was like a miracle, because the second longest time was 27 days, and I was feeling so good about myself. It was about 4 p.m. in the afternoon in my apartment. My husband was out, no witnesses, you know. And I wanted to binge so bad. Every cell in my body wanted to binge. I was fighting it and fighting it. I was exhausted fighting it. And I thought, just for the hell of it, I'll call somebody, because that's something I can do. And then I'll binge. And I called her basically to tell her how bad I was going to be, and then I was going to be bad. And I called somebody I actually didn't know, but she gave me her phone number at a meeting. So I called her. I said, hi. I'll use the name Leslie, which is her name, but I've never seen her ever again in my whole life. Hi, Leslie. This is Nanette. I saw you at X meeting, and I want to binge. And she said, you must really want to recover because you called me. And until she said that, I didn't know. I didn't know I wanted to recover. I just thought I was going to be bad. And I felt better. But that doesn't mean I wasn't going to binge. I was still going to binge. And then she said, when would you like to start binging? I thought, this is easier than I thought. <laughs> and I thought, if I binge at 6 p.m., it would look better, because right now it's 4 p.m., and if I, meals at mealtime, if I binge at 6, it would look better. And she says, can you wait until 6? And she says, I said, yes. She says, don't binge until 6, like an order. <laughs> and I said, okay. And it was like two minutes for the whole phone call. I said, oh, I've got to get to binge at 6. <laughs> <laughs> And then I fixed the bed, did dishes in the sink, tidied up here and there. I grabbed the remote control, sat down and watched TV, channeled hop here and got bored and channeled hop there. Did that for a while, and then I looked at the clock. It was 6.15. It was 15 minutes past my binge start, and I hadn't started. I could have been binging 15 whole minutes. <laughs> and knowing that I could have been doing it for 15 minutes, I didn't want to binge anymore. So I fixed a plate a little mountain on a plate. I ate this entire mountain, and the meal stopped at the edge of the plate. It didn't travel onto the kitchen. It stopped. The meal stopped. And I subscribe to the notion that the, one of the miracles for us isn't that we eat three times a day, it's that we stop three times a day. And that was another day of abstinence. Okay, so when I was about six months abstinent. Again, it was like a miracle. I was six months. 
wait, it was nine months. It was nine months, close to a year. And I, again, it was 4 p.m. My husband was out. And I thought, I wonder what's in the pantry. So I go to the pantry, and there was a partial box of uh, well-known cracker. And oh, I didn't know this was here. And I had, the way I, you know, I had a clothespin on the, the bag inside the box. And so I undid it and took out a grab of crackers, went down and sat down. And then it was gone. Like I breathed it in. It was gone. Oh, it's gone. So I went back for the second time, unrolled the thing, put the clothespin, everything, another grab, and I sat, and it was gone again. So I went back a third time. But the third time, I was no longer in denial. I was going to eat the whole box. So I just took the whole box, sat down in front of the TV, and ate the whole box. And so what have I done? I've been absent nine months. I've never been... Have I broken my... Of course I've broken my absence, even recovering from the disease of perfectionism. How can I... I didn't want to share it, you know, but we are sick as our secrets. So first I shared it with a friend in OA, and she didn't think it was that bad, and I thought, well, she just likes me. I mean, she's just being supportive. <laughs> and then... I mean, the person I didn't want to call is my sponsor, right? Mm -hmm. So then they finally called my sponsor and told her what the terrible thing I had done and asked her the big question, am I still abstinent? And I didn't like her answer, which was, I can't, I can't tell you. You have to decide for yourself. And then I tried to ask her in different ways to see which way she was leaning. <laughs> and she wouldn't tell me. But just before we hung up, <clears throat> she said... Ask God for the willingness to be rigorously honest. And I knew that was the right answer. So every time I remembered, I practically chanted that prayer, Dear God, please give me the willingness to be rigorously honest. And I did that, and then something happened Sunday evening. I was by myself in the living room, and I heard a voice speak to me, and I, I heard it so clearly that I actually turned to look to see who was there, but nobody was there but me. And this is what the voice said, and it said it in a split second, but this is what the voice said. If you want to be rigorously honest, and if you, you change your date, you'd feel like you're back to square one. That would be a lie. So you can't change your date because that would be a lie. You have to continue with what you have. And I couldn't believe it because it was, I didn't know, I just... Can that be the message that I have to keep my abstinence date and have a tainted abstinence from now on? Yes, that was the message to me. That was clear as anything. So then I still wanted to keep that message a secret, but of course I'm sick as my secrets. So I shared it at a meeting, scary meeting with a bunch of people listening to me. And I shared what had happened, and there was a, an old-timer there by the name of Doris, who scared me? She always scared me because she was really tough in what she shared with anybody. She told it like it was. But she was in the meeting, and so I shared it. And it felt like a quarter of the meeting came up to me and hugged me and said they were happy for me. And I thought, I didn't know the, I didn't know the fellowship could be so loving and that my higher power could be so generous. I didn't know. And then Doris was in line, and she came up to me and she said, You've got it. You've really got it. And I did not know what she meant, but I was grateful she wasn't angry. <laughs> so that was nine months. And then finally, okay, so I started the absence before I got a sponsor. I had several sponsors, 
but this particular long-term, this four years, I got it before I, I was in between sponsors because I knew that I'm so passive-aggressive that if I didn't, if I got angry at my sponsor, it might mess up my entire program. That's how I am at the time. And so, but when I got a sponsor, I got it because I, I needed to keep what I had, and I did need it. I felt I had to have a sponsor to help me. And I had this sponsor for about a year and a half, and I really was going really well. I was two years abstinent. And on the phone, she said once, Nanette, do you have a bottom line? And I said, I don't have a bottom line. It's meals at mealtime with life in between. And she said, I think you should have a bottom line. And I said, I explained to her that something in me, if I had a, a point where I would fail, a bottom line, that if I crossed this line, I would have failed, that I would go there. Consciously, I'd be fighting and white-knuckling, trying not to, but there's something in me that would have to go there to prove something, to prove that I was acceptable any way I was. I mean, I'm, that's a current insight, but at that time, I just knew that I would try to go there. So I explained to her that that's, I don't have a bottom line because it would mess it up for me. And that it's not like I was having trouble with food. I wasn't. She said, I think you have a, should have a bottom line. And I didn't want to lose her as a sponsor, although she later fired me. Um, I said, okay, I'll come up with a bottom line, but it would have to be an honest bottom line where if I crossed it, I will know that I am not abstinent anymore, and it has to be measurable. So I thought for a few seconds, and so I said, this is my bottom line, a month of binging. If I binge for a month, I'll be sure. And she sounded exasperated. She just breathed, and it did sound ex <laughs> But that is my current bottom line, I have, and I would never go there. I'm too, I don't have that kind of, killer instinct for myself anymore, you know. Whatever self-loathing I still have at times, I would never go there. I'm just, I've evolved. So, um, okay. So I'm going to share something I don't want to share right now. And I don't usually share this at a 20-minute pitch because I don't want to share it. And I don't want to share anything that I can't finish. And I don't, I don't know how long it's going to take. So you, you may have noticed, some of you, that I'm on crutches. And when I was one and a half years old in real life, not program, I got a really high fever. And I was crying, and my, I was a toddler, and I had just learned to walk. And they were so worried, they thought I had the flu. And so finally, the fever passed after a lot of days, and I was okay again, normal. And so they took me out of the crib, and they put me down, and I wouldn't walk. I just stood on my left leg, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch the ground with my right leg. So they were very alarmed, and they took me to the doctor. And it turned out I did not have the flu. I had polio. It affected my right leg. So my right leg doesn't have the full strength of the average leg. And... For me to walk today, I have to have two crutches because my, my, my right leg won't hold my body. It has, my body is too heavy for my leg to handle. So I take a step, I do two crutches, and then I can walk. And when I was 
growing up, I had a relative who said to me, who kind of compared me to a well-known person whose name was Johnny W., who was an Olympic diver and racer and swimming champion. And Johnny W. later made Tarzan movies, quite a number of Tarzan movies in the 40s and 50s, I guess. And I was compared to him because he was supposed to have had polio. He swam and swam and became, you know, strong. And, you know, why didn't I recover that way? So he was my secret enemy. And I was in, in the recovery when he died. My enemy died. And his obituary wasn't in the obituary section. It was on the front page of the L.A. Times. So I had to read about you know, his death and everything. And I read that he was never sick a day in his life and that he, uh, he dropped out of school and he went to the swimming hole with his buddies and he, he loved swimming and he used to sneak into the University of Chicago and use their swimming pool. And so the, the, the thing about the polio was made up by his publicist when he started making Tarzan movies to make his life more interesting. And I thought, gee, that's ironic. And it said that he went to the University of Chicago when actually he just snuck in to use the swimming pool. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, that's ironic. But then when I was doing a second inventory, that's when it really hit me. The here I was comparing, he didn't have polio. He didn't have recovery from polio. He had no recovery to share with me. And I was comparing my genuine recovery to a figment of someone's imagination, somebody's fantasy, a myth, and I wasn't measuring up. And so there must be many tapes like that where I'm not measuring up, which are false. So it's my desire to share truthfully about myself when I share to the best of my ability the good, the bad, and the ugly, because I don't want anybody to compare their insides with my outsides. And I share stuff that some people find really outrageous about the 30 days of binging. There are certain things people find outrageous, but that's the truth, and that's what helped me through. Oh. Oh. Okay. <sighs> okay. So this, I had a job that I now retired from, but when I was new, I was administrator hired me as his assistant, his executive assistant. And he retired, and then I was assigned to four people who were equal among themselves, but they designated one person to be my official supervisor. I really liked them, and I worked for them for uh, about a year. And then in this organization, they had annual evaluations. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have an annual evaluation. I really liked them, but I really didn't know. I was the only person helping them. I, there's nobody to compare with. And so my supervisor asked me to write my own and turn it into her, and that she would review my estimation of myself, and then she would write hers, and that would have an interview, and then hers would be the, the real one. So I didn't want to do mine because I didn't know how they felt about me. And so because I had to write it and turn it into her by a certain date, I had to be honest. So I said, what do I really think of my work here? And this is what I thought. 
I thought they couldn't hire anybody to do a better job than I did. They could hire somebody who had different, different strengths and shortcomings, but not a better job. And if I thought that, which I did, it must be excellent. So the form that I had to fill was uh, from one to seven. One to seven, one the worst and seven the best. And one and two was under the column that said improvement needed. Three, four, and five was under the column that said satisfactory. And six and seven was under the column that said excellent. Well, I must be excellent. So I gave every single thing, like quantity of work, quality of work, adherence to blah, blah, blah. The whole list, I gave myself excellent for the whole thing. Uh, sixes or seven. I thought it was better. Seven, not so good. Six. Mm -hmm. I, the entire whole evaluation form is sixes and seven. I didn't go below a six. And at that time, there was a period of time where I was three to eight minutes late, often. That's a six. <laughs> so I turned that in, and then I panicked, like, how dare I say that I'm perfect, and I know I make mistakes, and she has the form already. So I pulled out my copy of what I turned in to review what I had put. And that's when I saw that the column didn't say perfect. It said excellent. And for the first time in my life, those two concepts, excellent and perfect, separated. I did not know I had them combined as the same thing, but they're different concepts entirely. I did not say I was perfect. I said I was excellent. So then we had the interview. She downgraded a few of my sevens to a six. She upgraded uh, more sixes to a seven, and she left the vast majority alone. And so that year, I got the highest raise you could possibly get in my category. Okay. So I'm going to end. I'm going to end by just sharing how I envision my recovery. I see my recovery like a forest, and the trees in the forest are days of abstinence. There are enough trees in this forest to make the forest a forest. And some of these trees are like oaks and firs and Christmas trees and sequoias, beautiful trees. And there's, if you hike over there, there's some tree stumps. The tree got cut in half. The tree is dead, dying, maggots crawling through them. But if I only look at the trees, I'm going to miss the rest of what's in that forest because there's more there than trees. There are streams and waterfalls and brooks and clover and California poppies and blue jays. And I don't see a forest and say, oh my God, this forest is messed up. I have too many tree stumps. I have to trash this forest and go on to a fresh one. Because a forest has nothing to do with me. It's God-given and God-made. has nothing to do with me. And if I believe my recovery is God-given and God-made, which I do believe, I have to accept everything that's there, no matter what my personal opinion is. So some days I think that maybe I've broken my abstinence. I don't make a decision of whether I've broken it <clears throat> or haven't broken it for three to six months. And just in case from now to three months I haven't broken it, I don't want to mess it up now. So I keep on keeping on. And little by little, in January, I turn 40. So thank you so much for letting me share. Okay. Is it there a quick question?
navigate social situations? Um, does that ever present a challenge to you with your, with your actions? Uh, it doesn't at this point. Can you repeat the question? Oh, I'm sorry. Does social situations challenge me in the food area? Yeah, and how do you handle it? And how do I handle it? Um, I do what everybody else is doing. If I'm um, in a party, I've been to many like AA birthday parties. If everybody's eating in the afternoon, I eat in the afternoon too. Um, and then I don't deprive myself by not having a dinner. The dinner is whatever size it is. And um, so I just do what everybody else does. I let them see what they're doing. Some places I simply don't because um, I eat vegan food, so I don't, I'm pretty disciplined with that, so I would go around it in some way. Sometimes I will eat something that has animal in it, like mayonnaise. I might do that. So thank you. My time's up.